With us this morning is our beloved prophet, President Gordon B. Hinckley. He was born in Salt Lake City in 1910 and celebrated his 96th birthday this past summer. After graduating from the University of Utah, President Hinckley was called to serve a mission to Great Britain, and upon his return he embarked on a lifetime of dedicated service for the Church. He has served in the First Presidency as a counselor to Presidents Kimball, Benson, and Hunter, and in 1995 he became the 15th President of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He has exhausted many of his younger brethren who travel frequently with him on worldwide assignments as they find it challenging to keep up with his fast pace and sense of urgency in performing the work of the Master. President Hinckley, as you know, recently returned from Finland, where he dedicated the Church's 124th temple located in Helsinki. Once again, President Hinckley, we are honored to welcome you to Brigham Young University. My dear friends, over the years I have spoken many times to generations of students who have assembled in this great Marriott Center. Today, if you will bear with me, I think I shall change the pattern of those previous addresses. Whether that change will be acceptable or not will depend on you. Furthermore, it is Halloween. That calls for something a little different, <laughs> but I don't know why it should. As all of you recognize, I am now an old man who has weathered many seasons and been touched and affected by many experiences. Emerson was once asked what books he had read that had most influenced his life. He replied that he could no more remember the books he had read than the meals he had eaten, but they had made him. And so, in the spirit of what Emerson said, rather than giving a speech, I've thought to offer several brief cameos or vignettes or seemingly little experiences that I remember from out of the past and that have touched my life in an unforgettable manner. They've all been published, and some of you may be familiar with them. They will not be in any chronicle, chronological order. I begin with number one. I was in the city of Torreon, Mexico, and was being driven about in a beautiful, and expensive automobile. It belonged to a man named David Castaneda. At one time, he and his wife and their children lived on a little run-down farm. They owned 30 chickens, two pigs, and one skinny horse. They walked in poverty. Then one day, two missionaries called on them. Sister Castaneda said, The elders took the blinders from our eyes 
and brought life into our lives. We knew nothing of Jesus Christ. We knew nothing of God until they came. They moved into the little town of Burma Hill. Circumstances led them to the junk business. They bought wrecked automobiles. This led to association with insurance companies. They gradually built a prosperous business in which the father and his five sons worked. With simple faith, they paid their tithing. They lived the gospel. They served wherever they were called. Four of their sons and three of their daughters filled missions. Through their influence, some 200 of their family and friends have joined the Church. Over 30 sons and daughters of family and friends have served missions. They donated the land on which a chapel now stands. At the time I met them, the children, now grown to maturity, and the parents were taking turns going to Mexico City each month there to work in the temple. They are a shiny and inspirational example of the miraculous power of missionary work. <clears throat> Think of the wonderful consequences of their being taught and receiving the teachings of the gospel from two humble missionaries. Such miracles are occurring today all across the world. Now, vignette number two. I have stood at the tomb of Napoleon in Paris, at the tomb of Lenin in Mos Moscow, and before the burial places of many others of the great leaders of the earth. In their time, they commanded armies. They ruled with near omnipotence. Their very words brought terror into the hearts of people. I reverently walked through some of the great cemeteries of the world. I have reflected quietly and thoughtfully as I have stood in the military cemetery in Manila in the Philippines. Here laid out in perfect symmetry are marble crosses marking the graves of 17,000 Americans who gave their lives in the Second World War. Encircling this burial ground are beautiful marble colonnades where are remembered another 35,000 who died in the terrible battles of the Pacific and whose remains were never found. I have walked with reverence through the British cemetery on the outskirts of Rangoon, Burma, now known as Myanmar, and noted the names of hundreds and thousands of young men who came from the villages, towns, and great cities of the British Isles, and who gave their lives in hot and distant places. I have strolled through old cemeteries in Asia and Europe and yet other places, and I have reflected on the lives of those who were once buoyant and happy, who were creative and distinguished, 
who gave much to the world in which they lived. They have all passed into the darkness of the grave. All who have lived upon the earth before us are now gone. They have left all behind as they have stepped over the threshold of silent death. As I have visited these various cemeteries, I have reflected first on the terrible cost of war. What a fruitless thing it so often is, and what a terrible price it exacts. I thought further of the oblivion of the grave. What would we do without the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Savior and our Redeemer? He has given us the assurance that life goes on beyond the veil, that it is purposeful and productive, and that each of us shall go on living after we depart this life. The next item in my chronicle of significant events is the great and deadly plague of the 14th century, followed by the Renaissance and eventually followed by the restoration of the gospel. Following the death of the Savior, the centuries rolled on. A cloud of darkness settled over the earth. Isaiah described it, For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. It was a season of plunder and suffering, marked by long and bloody conflict. Charlemagne was crowned Emperor of the Romans in the year 800. It was an age of hopelessness, a time of masters and serfs. The first thousand years passed, and the second millennium dawned. Its earlier centuries were a continuation of the former. It was a time fraught with fear and suffering. The great and deadly plague of the 14th century began in Asia. It spread to Europe and on up to England. Everywhere it went, there was sudden death. Boccaccio said of its victims, At noon they dined with their relatives and friends, and at night they supped with their ancestors. It struck terror into the hearts of the people. In five years, it took the lives of 25 million, one-third the population of Europe. Periodically, it reappeared with its dark and ghoulish hand, striking indiscriminately. But this was also a season of growing enlightenment, the dawning of the Renaissance. As the years continued their relentless march, the sunlight of a new day began to break over the earth. There was a magnificent flowering of art, architecture, and literature. Reformers worked to change the church, notably such men as Luther, Melanchthon, Huss, Zwingli, and Tyndale. These were men of great courage, some of whom suffered cruel deaths because of their beliefs. 
Protestantism was born with its cry for reformation. While this great ferment was stirring across the Christian world, political forces were at work also. There came the American Revolutionary War, resulting in the birth of a nation whose constitution declared that government should not reach its grasping hand into matters of religion. A new day had dawned, a glorious day. Here there was no longer a state church. No one faith was favored above another. All of the history of the past had pointed to this season. The centuries with all of their suffering and all of their hope had come and gone. The almighty judge of the nations, the living God, determined that the times of which the prophets had spoken had arrived. Daniel had foreseen a stone which was cut out of the mountain without hands and which rolled forth and filled the whole earth. Then occurred that most wonderful event, the revealing of the Father and the Son to the 14-year-old Joseph. There followed an orderly procession, the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, then the restoration of the priesthood with keys to unlock the door of eternal life. How thankful we should be for these marvelous and wonderful things so that so richly bless our lives, including the privilege of attending this university. And now number four is a cameo of a little different nature. Joseph Anderson was a 70. He lived to be 102, the oldest general authority ever. He served as secretary to President Heber J. Grant, beginning way back in 1922. In his old age, President Grant became seriously ill. When Joseph visited with him, President Grant said to him, Joseph, have I ever been unkind to you? Have I ever abused you in any way? Joseph said, No, President Grant, you have never been unkind to me in all these many years. Tears rolled down President Grant's cheeks, and he said, Joseph, I am glad that you can say that I have never been unkind to you. President Grant died the next day. Joseph Anderson, through the remainder of his life, had reason to rejoice in the kindness, the civility, the decency, the honesty, and the integrity on the part of a most remarkable and wonderful man, President Heber J. Grant. <clears throat> now, for a touch on the lighter side, comes number five. My father used to tell this story. A boy came down to breakfast one morning and said to his father, Dad, I was dreaming about you last night. You were? Yes. What were you dreaming? I was dreaming that I was climbing a ladder to heaven, 
And on each rung of the ladder as I went up, I had to write one of my sins. His father said, Yes, where do I come into your dream? The boy said, As I was going up, I met you coming down for more chalk. Now for number six. <laughs> I've always loved this piece of poetry by Rosemary and Stephen Bonnet. It is entitled Nan Nancy Hanks and speaks the thoughts of the mother of Abraham Lincoln. It reads as follows. If Nancy Hanks came back as a ghost, Seeking news of what she loved most, she'd ask first, where's my son? What's happened to Abe? What's he done? Poor little Abe left all alone except for Tom, who's a rolling stone. He was only nine the year I died. I remember still how hard he cried, scraping along in a little shack with hardly a shirt to cover his back and a prairie wind to blow him down or, or pinching times if he went to town. You wouldn't know about my son? Did he grow tall? Did he have fun? Did he learn to read? Did he get to town? Do you know his name? Did he get on? You know the answer. He became America's most admired president. Now for number seven. No series of vignettes drawn from church history would be complete without reference to the handcart pioneers of 1856, 156 years ago this very day. My wife's great-grandmother, Mary Penfold Goebel, was baptized in England. The family joined the Hunt Wagon Company, which accompanied the Martin Handcart Company. Her daughter's account is written in the simple, matter-of-fact manner of a young girl. But behind those plain words is stark tragedy. She writes as follows. We traveled from 15 to 20 miles a day till we got to the Platte River. We caught up with the handcart companies that day. We watched them cross the river. There were great lumps of ice floating in the water. It was bitter cold. The next morning there were 14 dead. We went back to camp and went to prayers. We sang, Come, Come, Ye Saints. I wondered what made my mother cry. The next morning, my little sister was born. It was the 23rd of September. We named her Edith, and she lived six weeks and died. She was buried at the last crossing of the Sweetwater. When we arrived at Devil's Gate, it was bitter cold. My brother James was as well as he ever was when he went to bed. In the morning, he was dead. 
My feet were frozen, also my brothers and sisters. It was nothing but snow. We could not drive the pegs for our tents. We did not know what would become of us. One night a man came to our camp and told us Brigham Young had sent men and wagons to help us. We sang songs, some danced and some cried. My mother never got well. She died between the little and big mountains. She was 43 years old. We arrived in Salt Lake City at 9 o'clock at night, the 11th of December, 1856. Three out of the four that were living were frozen. My mother was dead in the wagon. Early next morning, Brigham Young came. When he saw our condition, our feet frozen, and our mother dead, tears rolled down his cheeks. The doctor amputated my toes while the sisters were dressing mother for her grave. That afternoon, she was buried. What a story in a few brief words. Now, number eight. In 1966, while the Vietnam War was raging, I went to that land. When we landed at Tonsonut Airport, Colonel Rosa put a piece of paper in front of me and said, sign this. I said, what is it? He said, it's a release relieving the United States government of any responsibility for you while you're in Vietnam. I signed the release, and we climbed aboard an old Goonie Bird airplane and ran down the runway. The sergeant had left the door open. When we got up in the air, I said, aren't you going to close the door? He said, it's too hot. And so we fly, flew up to Da Nang, and I'll never forget that meeting as long as I live. Men came in from the battle areas, stacked their rifles at the door of the building. Three of their number had been killed that previous week. We held a memorial service for them and then had a meeting. The Jews were to have the building that night. It was Saturday. And when they saw how many of us there were, and there were only about a dozen of them, they generously said, you go back in and use the building. When the meeting was over, we were loaded into an army ambulance and taken to stay the night in a field hospital that was not finished. It was made of components that were being bolted together, produced in the States and shipped to Vietnam. But the air conditioning wasn't working and so it was like an oven. The windows were all sealed. To take a shower, we had a big barrel of water with a dipper. All through the night, fighter aircraft were flying north, and we wondered how many of them would come back. We went back to Not Trang, down to Not Trang on Sunday morning and held a wonderful meeting there. We had the sacrament with men who hadn't had the sacrament in months. For me, 
That was a great and significant and unforgettable experience. Now number nine. I had a long-remembered experience with Mr. Shimon Peres of Israel. He was a former prime minister. He had seen much of conflict and trouble in his days. I asked him whether there is any solution to the great problems which constantly seem to divide the people of Israel and the Palestinians. He replied, of course there is. As I recall, he said, when we were Adam and Eve, we were all one. Is there any need for us now to be divided into segments with hatred for one another? He then told a very interesting story that he said he had heard from a Muslim. The Muslim told of a Jewish rabbi who was conversing with two of his friends. The rabbi asked one of the men, How do you know when the night is over and a new day has begun? His, his friend replied, When you look into the east and can distinguish the sheep from a goat, then you know the night is over and the day has begun. The second was asked the same question. He replied, When you look into the distance and can distinguish an olive tree from a fig tree, then you know morning has come. They then asked the rabbi who he could tell, how he could tell, when the night is over and the day begins. He thought for a time and then said, When you look into the east, and see the face of a woman, and you can say, She is my sister. And when you can look into the east and see the face of a man and can say, He is my brother, then you know the light of a new day has come. Think of that for a few moments, my dear friends how eloquently it speaks of the true meaning of brotherhood. And so, my brothers and sisters, I might go on. I have given you a sampling of significant occasions that have forever touched my life. They have influenced my thinking and my behavior. They have affected my life in an unforgettable manner. You likewise will have significant experiences. I hope that you will write them down and keep a record of them, that you will read them from time to time and refresh your memory of these meaningful and significant things. Some of them may be funny. Some may be of significance only to you. Some of them may be sacred and quietly beautiful. Some may build one upon another until they represent a lifetime of special experience. So it was with a girl I married nearly 70 years ago. My experiences with her stand out vividly in my memory. I cannot forget them. 
When she was young, I was bewitched and in love. That love strengthened through the years. She came to be a woman of recognized capacity. She traveled across the world with me and spoke on every continent, giving encouragement and bearing her testimony. She authored books. She was once honored here as the Woman of the Year. A chair at this university carries her name. She left me two and a half years ago. The resulting loneliness never entirely disappears. On the granite marker at her graveside are inscribed the words, Beloved Eternal Companion. Such she is, and such she always will be. I remind you now, each of you, that the association you now enjoy as students is probably the best time of your lives to find your own eternal companion. Do so with a prayer in your heart. It will be the most important decision you will ever make. It will influence your life from now through all eternity. God bless you, my beloved friends. May this be a wonderful season in your lives as you attend this great church-sponsored university is my humble prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.